So he's talking here about three different uh, metaphors. First, he talks about the soldier, then the athlete, and then the farmer. And I think today I want to really focus on these first two, the athlete and the soldier, looking at life as a race and looking at life as warfare. Um, I don't think this is typically how we think about it, and I think we all need to change our thinking, and, and there are so many benefits to doing that. But as we look at that, we see that being a soldier, we endure hardship. If you're a soldier, I was in the military, and I, I worked with the, the defense of the ground launch cruise missile for a while as a de- defense force commander, and we had guys out in foxholes, and you know, if somebody called in and said, oh, I'm all dirty, I had to low crawl over to that thing over there, and somebody shot at me. You'd be like, what are you worked up about? You're in the military. (laughs) You're a soldier. That's what soldiers do. They crawl around in the mud, they get shot at, they shoot at other people, okay? But so often, what happens to us? Something happens bad, you know, our child gets really sick, and we are so surprised. God, what is going on? Okay? I think so often it's because we, if we, our mindset was that we're in a battle, then when there's trauma, when there's difficulties, that's what we expect. But if we have some other metaphor or way of thinking about our life, then we have those kind of issues. Immediately we begin, and I, I do that. God, what's going on here? Um, but if we see life as a battle, that's what's to be expected. Also, this says the soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. He doesn't get distracted by issues that aren't related to the primary mission. He's focused. A soldier is focused. We all need to hear that. So often we get sidetracked by things that happen in our lives. Then the athlete doesn't get the crown unless he competes according to the rules. We were just talking about this this morning. Um, There was an athlete, for a while they suspended him. His his foot just went outside the line on one of the the, uh, lanes, and he had the bronze medal. They took it away. Then later they went back and decided, wow, it was such a small infraction that they they didn't. But the American 4x400 team, or 4x100 team, they didn't finish the baton pass before they got out of the area. and They lost. They were disqualified. Okay, so it takes discipline to play by the rules, to follow the rules. We need to discipline ourselves. Then lastly, the farmer. It calls the farmer the hardworking farmer. So one, we're to be hardworking and he should be the first to receive the share of the crops. Okay? So as Christians, we need to work hard, just like a farmer, knowing that we'll reap reward as we work hard. Our, our labors are not in vain. So we see these, these metaphors, the soldier, the athlete, the farmer. Also in scriptures, we see, uh, sometimes it talks about the, we're a builder, or we're ambassadors for Christ. There's many metaphors that are used in the Scripture for us to think about uh, how should we liken our life to. And analogies, metaphors, are really powerful. A lot of times if you have a problem and you can't work through it, and then somebody says, oh, well, have you thought of this analogy? That problem is like this. And they give this simple analogy, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, oh, I get it. Analogies are very powerful, and I believe, especially for Christians, The analogies that we choose to focus on, on how we view our life, are critical. I believe the metaphor we most often use is that we think we think of our we think of being on a journey with God. Okay, that's very different than thinking that we're in a battle, or that we're in a race. No, we're on a journey, and God God's with us, just like we're taking a walk through the park or on a trail with our father. Or maybe we're going on a, we're in a park and we're on one of the the trails with the the ranger, the chief ranger of that national park, okay? 
So we're, we feel like we're in confident hands. We're not going to get lost. Okay, so then what happens then if something bad happens? We come, a, a bear attacks us. We're like, well, I'm with the ranger. Why, you should have known what to do. What happened? This is not supposed to happen. This is just a, a happy walk through the park. Okay? But if we see life as a battle and someone starts shooting at us, we're like, okay, yeah, I thought that would happen. Okay, I know what to do. I'm in a battle. We don't get all bent out of shape. And I, I think this is often why my response is that way. I am really electric today. Uh, okay, I hope this is an electrifying message. Okay. So, yeah, we, we, we just think we're on a journey. And we often think about the Christian life, but we're on a journey to the end. Um, for some people... We think of the Christian life is more is that insurance paper. Okay, I made it. It's an a ticket to get into an event. Okay, I got my ticket to go to heaven. I got my ticket. I'm just not. I'm just make sure I don't lose it before I get to heaven, and I'll just cruise through life. Do you see how extremely different that is than when Paul says, "Think of yourself as being in a race. Think of yourself as being in a battle." Okay. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm on journey with God on a difficult path. Just last week, Paul was talking about the narrow gate. The ESV says, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are a few. Okay, so this, we're on a difficult path. We're on a difficult path. And even further, I think we should, say, we should think of it in terms of, if we're going to use the journey analogy, we're on a journey with our all-powerful Heavenly Father through a war zone. If you were going to think about life as a journey, think about it as one through a war zone. That uh, is more in line uh, with what we see in Scripture. Now, all these metaphors are limit, have their limits, and they're all useful. But I think for American Christians, we especially are benefited by thinking of ourselves as being in a race or being in a battle. The athlete, we already talked about briefly, has to discipline themselves to play by the rules. In 1 Timothy 4.7, it says the, the Greek word here is gymnazo, okay? So it's obvious we're talking about these athletic Paul has athletics in mind when he's talking about this training. And he says, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, or agonizemetha, agonize, because we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. So Paul calls them to train themselves to be godly. And he says, physical training is of some value. But when we train ourselves for godliness, it has value for this life and the life to come. In the life to come, the more godly our character, the more glory that we're going to bring to the Lord um, the more we're going to be conformed to his image, the more we're going to bring glory to him now and in the future. It has benefit for both. And he says this saying that we should train ourselves to be godly and that godliness has value for all things should be fully accepted. And then he talks about we put our hope in the living God. So physical training has value in this life. Spiritual training, it's assumed here he's saying, produces godliness. That's why we should train ourselves spiritually, because we can be more godly, more like Jesus Christ. Think about your own life. Think about your training. The other day, I, uh, about six months ago, I was every day going to the gym. I was getting in some of the best shape I've ever been in, and then some things happened. I got off track for like six months. I didn't do hardly anything. And I went out for a run. I was so miserable. It is a horrible feeling to be out of shape. Uh, I couldn't get any air. Oh, it's miserable. I hadn't been training myself. And that was the result. Think about right now 
How, how's your physical training? Okay, probably very closely linked to how much effort you're putting toward it, how much time and thought you're putting to it. If you never exercise or go to the gym, chances are you're miserable like me if you go try to run a little bit. Now, think of your spiritual condition, your spiritual training. How much time and thought and energy have you been giving to it the last six months? And Paul here is saying, train yourselves. It's valuable. Spiritual training, becoming more godly, more like Jesus, has value now and for eternity. It's worth it. Invest time in it. And he says, we labor and strive. We agonize at times even spiritual training. We were talking about this with the youth the other night. You know, it's not just having quiet times, memorizing verses, but part of our training is training to love people. That's the greatest command in the scriptures. We're to be people of love. It's not always easy to love people. Sometimes it can be agony trying to love somebody who's unlovable. And we're just striving to do it. Lord, help me. Move me by or fill me with your Holy Spirit that I can better love this person. In my flesh, I don't have it. So there can be this, this agony. Like in sports, when they're training, they're in agony sometimes. I had a friend that used to run the 400 meters, and he said, he said, I stopped running it. I just went to the 100 and 200. He said, the 400 is the most painful event ever created. He said, you get to 300 meters and your body just shuts down and it's just pain from there on out. Just pain. And so he said, I just stopped doing it. It wasn't worth it. I hate pain. <laughs> okay, there's going to be pain in our, our spiritual training as well at times. It's going to be difficult. Life can be difficult when we're in a race, we're in, we're in a battle. But we train because of our hope in Christ. We know it's going to pay off now and for eternity. Okay, then Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Okay, so he's hammering away at this idea again. Train yourselves. But first he says, don't you know in a race there's only one winner? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Run as, so that you're going to be the one that gets the gold medal, is what he's saying. Uh, we were talking about this with the youth the other night, too. And it's not that only one person is going to get to heaven. It's not like you're trying to, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to have more quiet times than Pastor Paul so I can get ahead of him and get more glory. No, that's not at all what Christ teaches. But it's better said, train as if. As if only one person got the prize. So he's talking, train for the gold medal, even in your Christian life. Train as if only one's going to get it. And so you're going to do everything you can to be as Christ-like as possible. I think of my own life. Think of your life. Do, am, do I train spiritually as if I'm going for the gold? Unfortunately, so often we're, we're content with just a mediocre effort or just cruising along. Oh, I go to church every Sunday. I go to men's group too and community group. I'm, man, I'm doing good. All right? And there's a danger here that you can think that I'm talking about works, that there's just all this effort you've got to pile on top of each other. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a sense we have a responsibility, as we often say at Crossway. We're responsible for our spiritual growth in this season of life. We do have a responsibility in our growth. God has his part, but he also expects us to, to make an effort. Somebody once said, you can be as hungry for God as you want to be. There's a lot of truth in that. How hungry for God are you? How is that reflected in your training that you go into, your spiritual training? 
Okay, in this passage, he goes on and he says, they go into strict training. They do it to get a crown that won't last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So therefore, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I will not be disqualified for the price. He's saying, I don't randomly train. Just do a little sprint here, throw a few punches over here. No, I have a regimen that I go through so that I won't be disqualified for the prize, so that I can get the prize. I go into strict training, just like Olympic athletes. Do you have a strict regimen that you have to become more like Christ? Paul wants you to have one. The Apostle Paul, Pastor Paul too. I want you to have one. I want you to think about how can I be more like Christ? Because it's worth it, all the effort that you put toward that. Might be there's some sin you're struggling with. Maybe a man, 95% to 99% of men, they say struggle with lust. And you say, I want to have victory. So you begin memorizing verses, what the scriptures say about it. You get an accountability partner. Say, every time we get together on Tuesday night, I want you to ask me, how are you doing with your eyes? Are you looking at any, have you looked at anything this week that you shouldn't have? Okay, because I'm serious about it. I'm, I am serious about becoming more like Jesus, and this is a stumbling block for me. Okay? Is there a sin in your life that God has told you you need, to, he wants you to have victory in, but you've given up, like me, went six months without doing anything, just kind of got apathetic. And he's calling you now you, to wake up and get with it. So Paul here says, run to win, train to win. Don't train aimlessly, train with a purpose and a goal. He says, they do it to get this crown. The crown they used to have was just this olive branch okay but he's saying you're you're going to get an eternal crown of rewards that will last for eternity doesn't it make sense to put effort into our spiritual life into becoming more like christ when we know it will be rewarded for eternity for eternity yes it's worth it in hebrews it says Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is another passage where Paul uses this metaphor of the Olympics and the, and these, the competition, these races, okay, of being surrounded by this crowd that's looking on as the participants participate. Many believe that this is in heaven, those that have completed the race, now looking down and watching the others completing the race as well. And he says, okay, we're in this race. Because of it, lay aside every weight and the sin that clings close so closely. Okay, Lay aside every weight. We were looking at one of the guy's jerseys the night. It was ripped in the back, and we started looking. It was like, wow, he was a 1,500 meters. And we're like, wow, that jersey is like made of paper. It must be so light. You know? I remember for the marathon years ago, Roberta uh, Salazar, when he ran the marathon that year, a lot of the Americans, they took their jerseys, the marathon runners, and they just cut out as many holes as they could. So it was just barely hanging together. Because they knew they were in for a long race and every bit of weight was going to cling to them and slow them down like sin. So they wanted to get rid of everything unnecessary so they could get the gold. Because it was a long race. And Paul says to run that race with endurance. Okay? Looking to Jesus. Looking to the finish line. We always say start with the end in mind. That helps us as we try to live with a focus on life as a battle, life as a race, that there's a finish line. And the finish line is we picture Jesus. You know, the cardinal rule, they say, in running, 
of what you don't do is you never, especially in the sprints and even longer races, you don't look around. That was a big scandal. I think it was in 2008 when Usain Bolt, the first time he won a gold medal, he set the world record. But 10 yards from the finish line, he looked to his left and he looked to his right to enjoy the moment of beating these other guys. And a lot of uh, coaches were really upset. They said, oh, he could have beat the record by even more. But as soon as you turn, you lose energy and it slows you down. He should have just stayed focused on the finish line. Coaches always preach that. In this, and you, you see that even today. People in the races, at the very end, they look like this to see someone here and the guy on the left passes them at the very end. So this metaphor, we keep our eyes on the finish line. And the finish line, in particular, we keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Okay. So we run this race. We know that apparently there are people watching on in heaven. That's further motivation that we want to run this race well. And also knowing we are going to join them there. And that what we do here is going to count. We're surrounded by this crowd, so we want to throw off what hinders. It's a long race, and every little bit that clings to us, the sin that clings to us, so any extra bit of weight, we want to get rid of it so that we can run with perseverance this race. It takes perseverance. There'll be times when we want to quit. You wouldn't need perseverance if it was easy, if there wasn't times when we wanted to quit. But God wants us to persevere and keep going. And if it's been six months since you've been exercising your spiritual muscles like you need to be, then today say, okay, I'm going to get with it again. Okay, and pick it up and go. We fix our eyes on the finish line. So from the athlete, Paul the Apostle is telling us, compete as if you're only one person's going to win. Okay? Actually, in Christianity, we know Part of our competing is helping others win, helping others do better in their race. Okay, so many are going to win, and we want to help as many as possible to win. But do it, train, live your life as if only one person was going to win. It makes, that's, that's pretty intense when you think about that. Paul's telling us, run as if only one was going to win the Christian race. Wow. If that was true, that would be some serious, intense training. Train with purpose and passion, knowing the rewards are eternal. Like we talked about, it can be agony at times. Paul said, as we strive to do this. And then, I forgot to put this passage up here, but and there's another place in Scripture where Paul says, I'm surprised that you've been disheartened that someone so easily cut in on you. Again, that was a term from running. In running, somebody cuts in on you, and it throws you all out of whack. Maybe you get tripped up, you lose your pace, and many times what happens is the, you, suddenly there's five yards between you and the person that was ahead of you. Because this guy cut in on you, and you lost your balance, you lost the pace that you were going on, your stride. So Paul talks to him, that's going to happen. People are going to cut in on you. There are going to be things that happen that disrupt your routine. Just when you think you got things in control in your life, it almost always happens, doesn't it? It's always something. I remember when I uh, worked at Caleb Project, um, I'd go back a couple, I, I worked out of LA, but our home office was in Denver. And every time I went back to, to visit and get updates on what was going on in the headquarters, uh, our president, his name was Greg Fritz. And every Tuesday at lunch, uh, or every morning they had, part of our job was from 8 to 9, as a Christian organization, we had a prayer time. That was part of your work day, is to be there and pray for our organization and the work we were doing to mobilize people to live and go as missionaries cross-culturally. Um, but, so we had morning prayer every day, but then on Tuesdays at lunch, he had a time of prayer and fasting, and he'd ask people to come. And So while I was there, I went in and uh, participated in and and he said, you know, I started this uh, about three years ago because there was this, we, ha we came into some financial problems. And I just knew God was, the only way we we're going to get out of them was through God's strength. And sure enough, he delivered us from that. He said, 
But as soon as that was over, there was something else. So he kept fasting the next week on Tuesday because there was an issue. And then that got resolved, and then there was another issue, and we've been fasting on Tuesday for three years. And he said, I think God's just showing me that unless God provides a crisis, it'll be so easy for me to get soft and to forget about God and just do things in my own power. So by God's mercy, he's allowed us for the last three years to always have some urgent matter that was so urgent I felt we needed to be fasting and praying about for God. And I loved how he said that. He said, in God's mercy, he allowed us to have these crises because he knew my heart, how easy it is for my heart to wander. I can resonate with that idea. So people are going to cut in on us. But realize that spiritual training produces godliness and it has value. And we need not to get distracted, but stay focused on what's important and we persevere. So this athlete metaphor is very helpful in helping us to stay focused on what's important and realize training produces godliness. Now, uh, we're going to try to show a little clip here. Um, we were not sure if it was going to work this morning. We had some issues with the net, but it's of... Galen Rupp and Mo Farah. He's from Great Britain. Galen Rupp is from the U.S. From the US. And this was the 10,000 meters race of several nights ago. And I don't know if you saw this. It was quite dramatic. Do you think it's going to work? Or if not, I'll tell the story. It doesn't matter. But uh, we'll give it a try here. Um, so it's the 10,000 meters, the 10K. So about 6.2 miles. In the 2012 Olympics... Galen Rupp, the American, the white guy, was the silver medalist. The gold medalist was the Great Britain, um, Mo Farah. And he was favored again this year to win the gold, and uh, Galen Rupp was favored to be a medalist. Um, so, and what's interesting is they're training partners. Okay, This is like the first lap of the race here. So they were, you'll notice that at one point they're together. Uh, let's, no, we're okay. Yeah, that's great right there. Okay, so this is the beginning of the race. I'll try to point out. Mo Farah's in the white jersey, and he's black, and in the blue, the white guy in the blue jersey is the American. Okay. What, what did I say? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so watch him here. Something doesn't look quite right here. Oh, there. Oh, actually, this is the wrong race. <laughs> okay, well, good enough. I think that was, uh, it happened in another race with him as well. But in this race, it was like two nights ago. So they're training partners. He's from Great Britain, but they train in Oregon, I guess up at the Nike headquarters or something. In the last, 2012, Rupp was a silver medalist, and Mo Farah was the gold medalist. So now it's four years later, they're both favored to win medals again. Well, about the third lap of, let's see, 55, 56, 24 laps or so, um, Mo Farah is in front of Galen Rupp, and his leg comes back and hits Galen Rupp's knee, and Mo Farah falls down. Okay, and, he's, and they're all focused on him, the commentators, because they think he's going to win the gold medal. So it's a big crisis in the race, but he gets right up, and it's one guy just misses, stepping right on his head. But Mo Farah gets up, and he runs a little bit, and he gives the thumbs up that he's okay. But the incredible thing that happens is Galen Rose was behind him. So when he tumbled down, there were two more people here, and he kind of leapt ahead of them, trying not to trip anybody, and went way outside on the track and then slowed down to wait for his training partner. Now, his training partner is not an American. He's from Great Britain, okay? And this is the Olympics. They're running for the gold medal. But he pulls out of the race and slows down, and they come up, and he starts talking to him. And then they continue the race. Well, in the end, Mo Farah, as he always does, the last 200 meters, he's in third place, and suddenly he turns on his kick, 
and he wins by 10 yards. Just amazing. And Rupp is fifth at the, or fourth at that point, but in the end, he fades to fifth, so he doesn't get a medal. And all of the focus was on Mo Farah. But later, they had an interview with Galen Rupp, and they asked him, we saw you guys talking. What were you talking about? And he said, oh, I just told him, come behind me, and I'll lead you up to the front again. So he felt responsible that he had ruined the gold medal for Mo Farah, his training partner. And so he, he got out of the line, slowed down, waited, wanted to make sure he was okay, and then said, come on, I'll help you up. I'm like, don't you know this is the Olympics? That's your chance to get the gold, man. And he's not from America. He's from Great Britain. They're the enemy. If you're going for the gold, go for it. But I believe he gave an Olympic caliber Christian response there. Wow, how selfless. And to think, I read about him starting when he was 16. He, was, he played soccer, but uh, this Olympic the uh, marathon runner saw him and said, you've got great endurance. You ought to become a marathon runner, a distance runner. And so he started training him. And sure enough, the 2012 Olympics, he got the silver medal in the 10,000 meters, okay, and was trying to win it here. So he'd been in, so for four years, he'd been in continuous training with Mo Farah, okay, training together. But he was willing to give four years of workup to make sure that his partner was okay. And then, not just make sure he's okay, he wanted to help him get back up to the front so he could win. He, he was supposed to win the silver medal again. But his focus was on his training partner. Now, I tried to do some research on whether he's a Christian or not, I don't know. Mo Farah is a, a, a Muslim um, from Great Britain, but they have a very special friendship. And his actions, whether he was a Christian or not, were Olympic caliber Christian response to a situation like that. That's unprecedented selflessness. And that's what God's calling us to, to train so that we can be like that. I think of another example of Olympic caliber Christian love. Uh, when I was in the military, I met a Marine lieutenant colonel named Tom Shackleton and got talking with him. And he told the story at one point, at the end of his career, he was uh, a commander over, I can't remember what, it, it was a group of about two or 300 Marines that he trained with them constantly about their mission and, uh, in war. and um, So he was the commander responsible for them. But he said that one day he got a call from his best friend that his best friend said, my wife and I are getting a divorce. And uh, this was a guy that he'd become a Christian at the same time. They'd gone to, or been through, a, uh, I think, Officers Christian Fellowship together for a number of years. And when this Marine Lieutenant Colonel heard that, he told his friend, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not getting the divorce. And he went and he, he left. He, took, he, he only had two weeks of leave left, and he had a family. But his wife agreed to it too. And he left, and for two weeks, his last two weeks of vacation, he went and every day spent it with his friend that was getting a divorce, trying to help them align counseling, talking with the wife, doing everything he could because his friend meant so much to him and he knew that them getting divorced was going to ruin their lives and ruin their kids' lives. And so in love, he went to help them. In fact, he said later he probably would have been promoted to full colonel except he took a lot of flack for that, for leaving on a short notice. I guess they had some inspections or things coming up, but that was his priority, and so he left. That's a Olympic-caliber love. I had a friend just this week got an email from. Her name's Midge Kalmoto. She was telling me um, that her, di her dad died at age 90 a few, a few months ago, and she said... The last week he was in the, I remember her telling, I've known her for years, she's told me about he loved to drink and gamble and smoke cigars and often had his buddies over at the house. And she, she's been a Christian for many years, many times shared with him, but he never had any interest. She said, but he got lung cancer at the end and his last week in the hospital, she said, 
he, his heart turned so soft to the Lord and he repented of his ways and decided he wanted to follow Jesus. And she said it was evident that the Holy Spirit was in him. It was so genuine. She said, but I'd been praying for him since I was 10 years old. She said, I can remember when I was 10, I started praying for my dad. She said, I'd become a Christian. I began immediately praying he would. And it wasn't till uh, about so 60 years later that so she prayed for him for 60 years. That's perseverance. That's discipline. That's Olympic caliber Christianity that brings great glory to God. That's the kind of perseverance Paul calls us to when he tells us to be athletes and to train ourselves for godliness. It brings great glory to God. That's why we do it. Let's see. Uh, can you forward for me? It stopped all of a sudden. Okay. Now I want to switch. We already talked uh, just briefly about the soldier who endures hardship, doesn't get distracted, but wants to please his commander. I want to focus more on this idea as if we see ourselves as soldiers for the Lord that are in a battle. Okay. In Ephesians 6, a very familiar passage that talks about put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, have they, there's been a lot of research. Clint Arnold at Biola has done a lot on this, and basically all these terms they found were terms that were used for spiritual forces. So when it's saying here rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and lastly, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, it's talking about all of those are spiritual forces, not, not rulers on earth. So he's saying we're, we're in a war against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we're involved in a cosmic battle here. So it's right that we should think of ourselves as soldiers and be sober knowing we're in that kind of battle. And he says, therefore, why do, if, whenever we see a therefore, we figure out what it's there for. Well, it's because, because you're in a battle against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, you better get your armor on so that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And then down here lower it says, talking about putting on the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Okay, so we have an enemy that's shooting flaming darts at us. We are in a very serious battle here, and we need to take it very seriously. And he says to put on the whole armor... And actually, I've seen where, actually, one way of looking at the armor is that every piece of the armor is related to, to Jesus Christ. If we look at it piece by piece, okay, the belt of truth, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The breastplate of righteousness, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. He imputes his righteousness to us, okay? The readiness of the gospel of peace, Jesus Christ is the good news that brings us peace. The shield of faith, our faith is in Jesus Christ. The helmet of salvation, our salvation is in Jesus Christ. And then the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So basically the idea that every day we need to clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. We're to, we're, with scriptures other places say we have all spiritual um, blessings available to us. Well, we need to put them on. We need to appropriate them. They're ours, but we need to put them on every day. The truth of Jesus Christ. We need to put on his righteousness. We need, somebody said before, we need to preach the gospel every day to ourselves. Say, Lord, I am righteous because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I have the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, I have placed my faith in you. Help me today live a life of faith and truth sharing the gospel, and using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and praying. These are the weapons that we have. Okay? 
in First Peter 5, it talks about, we'll go there now. Okay, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, arguments, lofty opinions raised up against the knowledge of God, and take captive, take every thought captive to Christ. So our weapons in this, as soldiers, are not the weapons of the world, but of prayer, the word of God, the truth of God, the faith, our faith in Jesus Christ, putting on Jesus Christ as our helmet, protecting our head, protecting our thoughts, protecting our minds, putting on Jesus Christ every day, all that he has given us. And in this battle, so we use spiritual weapons, and we destroy arguments that are not of the Bible. When, some, when this world around us is all, always telling us lies that, that disagree with the Bible. No, we stand with the truth of the Bible. Also, Paul goes on to say, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, saying, realize the devil is prowling around out there, looking for someone to devour. Your enemy wants to devour you. Remember what Jesus said that one time to Peter? He said, Satan wants to sift you. Oh, I love that word. Just wants to sift you like that destroy you like that he wants to devour you he wants to ruin your family so that's the kind of enemy we have but our view of the world is that we're taking a walk through the park with god doesn't quite match up right does it and sometimes we forget that this walk through the park this journey we're on is with god no it's a walk with god through a war zone that's what we're doing and God is there to help us. And we need to stay ever close to him so he can guide us and help us navigate the trials of our life because Satan wants to sift us. Then also, like we, we've kind of already touched on this, but there's a backdrop of, of warfare. Now, I'll just quickly go over this, this idea that um, first we, we have uh, Job, okay, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? He answered, roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has. <laughs> he will surely curse you to his face, to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Wow, what a fascinating story. Here, behind Job's life in the heavenly realms is a battle between God and Satan that Job didn't see. Okay? We just talked about there's all these evil forces, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places in this battle. We don't, we don't know what's happening with that. But, Again, do you see this picture of the kind of battle that we're in? We're in a battle here, and there's a battle going up above us that we don't completely understand. And often we're impervious to it. We forget that, the, that there's a, a spiritual battle going beyond, above us going on, and there's one right in front of us as well. And we need to wake up and see that life is war. We're involved in a war. We want our life to go smoothly. Often, so often our goal is just that life would go, I can learn to apply the biblical principles so my life will go as smoothly as possible. Okay? When in fact we need to wake up and say, wow, I'm in the middle of a battle and I need to fight it well. 
Another one of the warfare, and this is kind of a complicated one. I'll let you look at more of it later. I don't want to spend too much time on it. But in Daniel 12, an equally fascinating passage similar to the, to the Job one. And basically the gist of it is, Daniel, in the third year, a revelation was given to Daniel. At that time, Daniel mourned for three weeks. And then he has an appearance and... Um, a hand touched me, set me trembling on my hands and knees. Then he continued, Don't be afraid, Daniel, for since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to him. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, the archangel, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. But now I've come to explain what will happen to your people in the future and to explain your vision. So basically we see here this interplay of Daniel, the archangel Michael, the prince of Persia, these uh, evil forces in the heavenly realms. All these things happening. It's kind of confusing if you read it. Well, I'm not going to try to explain it today. Um, I don't know if I could explain it all. But the main point is this idea that they're all interplayed here. He was, this messenger was delayed because of, his, of this battle. So in our lives, there's this background of spiritual warfare going on in the heavenly realms that we were not even aware of what's going on there. But we are in the midst of this war, which is in the midst of this war. And so we need to fight. We need to train ourselves. In Luke 14, you sh um, this was when Jesus was, was tempted uh, in the desert before he started his ministry. So the last temptation Jesus answered, he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Wow. So Satan, our enemy, not only prowls around looking to devour people, but he's waiting for the optimal time to strike. The time when you and your wife haven't been praying together and you just had some arguments that he allows something really bad to happen because he knows, man, they're at their worst right now. That's what I'm going to attack now. He doesn't just randomly attack. We have a wily, scheming, conniving enemy, a formidable foe. So there, there even should be a... Yeah, we need to have... An understanding. Wow, this is a battle against a formidable foe. Praise the Lord. God is far greater than him and more powerful. But if we don't access God's power, we're in trouble. Without the righteousness of Christ, without the power of God, we don't access God's power in our life. We have a formidable foe that's attacking against us. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. Listen to this passage. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What was Paul fighting for here? He finished the good fight. It says it here. What was he fighting for? His faith. Part of his battle, there were many aspects to it, but part of it was to keep his faith in God and to not give up. Wow, that's sobering the first time I heard John Piper was preaching on this. That part of what Paul was fighting for was to keep his faith in God. Wow. And to not say, and not to give up and just take things in our own hands. We're all tempted to do that sometimes, aren't we? Ah, oh, I... God failed me on that. Does he, even, does he even see me? Does he see what's going on? I'll just take care of it. Okay? So, just briefly, some other things about Satan and this foe. He works in the hearts of the sons of disobedience. He blinds unbelievers. He deceives the whole world. He does signs and wonders to lead people astray. He holds people captive to do his will. He takes the word away when it's sown in people's lives and he uses people to hinder other people in their walk with God. He thwarts missionary plans. 
Okay, Paul was prevented from going where he originally intended to. He said, Satan thwarted my plans. And, and then Revelation talks about where Satan threw these Christians. It uses that terminology. Satan threw them into prison. Okay, well, he used guards to do it. more, um, But it was Satan that was behind it. So this is sobering. Especially when we start thinking, wow, I'm, we have kids. I, my kids are not exempt from this battle. In fact, the enemy particularly, particularly knows he can really get to parents by attacking their kids, what they treasure. So, now I just want to kind of end by talking about how the way we view life as battle, how that it changes things. Okay? If we, when we view life as a battle, as a war, it changes our responses to difficulties. So instead, when something bad happens, we don't go, what's going on, God? Oh, my daughter's sick. She's got a temperature of 104. And they say if it doesn't go down, something, she, she could have some brain damage. Or even something small happens. Oh, I got somebody dented the side of my car today. God, how could you allow that to happen? What's going on? If we see life as a battle, we expect attacks. But if we see it as a journey, just a simple journey in the park, we're surprised. People aren't supposed to get... That's why there was all the outrage with these terrorist attacks. What is in San Bernardino? Weren't they were in a community center or something, right? People don't get shot in community centers, do they? If, if you're out on a walk and somebody starts shooting at you, you're like, what is going on? That's the right response. But if you're on a walk in a war zone and shots start being fired, you get down on your stomach, you do what you're trained to do. You fight. But so often, because we, our mentality is we're just on this this journey, a nice little journey, we are surprised, we're shocked when bad things happen. So our response is much different and more sober when we know we're in a battle. We're ready for it. We're, we're expecting attacks to happen. Our response to, to little and big victories, when we realize that we're in a battle, and I think the best way to think of this is... Um, the, the, the movement, to the prosperity gospel movement. I think they, there tends to be this sense of, oh, Jesus, there was a battle, and Jesus won the victory, and now we're celebrating, we're in the period of time where we're celebrating his victory and all the blessings and plunder of war that come to us as Christians. Okay? But I think the more accurate view is like in World War II, at Normandy, there was a tremendous loss of life as they established this beachhead and got through it, got into the interiors of Europe and into Germany. And once they broke through the German army and were able to attack them from many sides, all the leaders said, we're going to win the war now. We have won the decisive battle. There's no way they can recover from this. Okay, so it was a huge victory. But there was still... I don't know, six months or more of fighting that had to go on. And there were some battles that were lost. But they knew the decisive blow had been struck. That's our situation today. Through great expense, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He broke the power of sin and death. And so now we work on, we live knowing that the decisive battle's been won. But there's still fighting that needs to happen in our lifetime until we get to heaven. We all long for a world that works right. And it's because one day we're going to live in one, in heaven. God's going to give it to us. That's why we, it's part of our DNA is a longing for a world where there's justice and truth and no pain and no tears. And we're going to get it one day, but not here. We'll get it in heaven. Until then, we fight. And so we celebrate victories. It's important when you're in a battle, every little victory celebrated. I, I told a story when Teo first learned how to resolve conflict with his teacher, and they resolved it successfully. We threw a big lunch party for him. We need to celebrate the victories, okay, because we're in a battle, and each victory is important. 
no matter how big or small. If we wait to just celebrate at the end, we'll miss, have missed out on so much. We need continual encouragement when you're in a battle. Because all around you, you see setbacks. You'll have friends that are having big setbacks in your face. Some friends that, wow, they're not even going to church anymore. I don't know if they even believe. And it will hurt you deeply. And there'll be other hurts. It's a battle. We're going to expect lots of difficulties. Also, our response to the quirks and weaknesses of others is different when we realize we're in a battle. Uh, um, years ago, I, I spent a semester with my brother in Kenya at a Bible college, and one of the teachers was a Brit, and he had this saying. It's a little, the wording's a little outdated, but you'll get the meaning. He said, all the world a little queer, but me and thee, and even thee a little queer. So the whole idea, everybody's kind of weird, except me and you. You know, me and Helen, we, we got it together. We're not weird. Well, even Helen, she's a little weird. Okay? <laughs> I mean, we always see faults in other people. Okay? But when we see that life's a battle and that Satan has been waging war on us and the people around us, and somebody we're working with may be difficult or... I had the situation working with a tenant. We we're trying to sell Helen Parents' house, and wow, I had uh, she was very hostile toward me. I was the mediator trying to um, wrap up and and have sold the house, so they needed to move out. But as it turns out, um, I think she's a Christian. Uh, at the very end of our time together, I prayed together, and her whole countenance changed. And I was so mad that God, why was I so stupid not to pray at the beginning? Um, but I later found out that she'd had some, um, been, uh, had some bad encounters with men, and that she had some issues relating to men, and I, I felt that. Now, when I realized, oh, she's, Satan has tried to attack her so that she will, will not respect men, so that she will not want to be married, so she will not want to uh, re- treat men with respect. He's tried to ruin her life, and he's had some victories. When I realize that she's been in a battle, okay, I, and, and that if perhaps if I'd walked in her shoes, I would be responding the same way. When we realize that people around us, with their quirks and the things they do that drive us crazy, that many times it's because they've been in a battle, they've been wounded by the enemy, and they're seeking. That's what the church is. It's a hospital. It takes in wounded people, gets them healed up, and then sends them out to heal others. So it changes the way we deal with others and their weaknesses and their quirks. And then about our future in retirement. Okay, if we're in a battle and we're committed to this battle, we're giving our life to it, well, when we get to 65, does the battle stop? If we've given our life to it, this is the focus of our life is bringing glory to God. At 65, do we, does the Bible say, oh, you get to retire, you don't have to... You don't have to do any more work. You can move to Florida and with, get your RV. Or, all right. It changes the way we think about our future. No, we want to we run this race to the very end. We want to battle for God's glory to the very end. I mean, when you get to be 65 now, you have had all this experience helping people uh, love the Lord and work through issues in their life. And you've worked through issues, and you've got so much to give. Why would you want to retire? God can use you so powerfully then to build his kingdom. So it changes the way we think about retirement in the future and then the way we view today. We wake up in the morning and we say, Lord, another day of battle. Thank you that you're here with me. We clothe ourselves in his righteousness. We pray for ourselves. We pray for our children. We get out our weapons. Because we know there's an enemy that's after us. And we soberly are aware throughout our whole day that we're in a battle. That things are going to come up. That Satan is trying to tear us down, tear somebody down. But that we're his soldiers that he wants to use in this cause. In the military, we'd never go anywhere. If I ever, as, as a, a commander of a defense force, if I ever saw any of our soldiers without their helmet on, without their flak vest, or without their M16, we would make them get down and do push-ups and sit-ups and punish them. 
We'd be like, what are you doing? You're, where's your helmet? Is it back in your foxhole? What's it doing there? What help is it going to give you there? The one bullet in your head and you're dead. You are in a war. What are you, what are, you don't have your flak jacket on? What are you thinking? You don't have your M16? You're wa- walking around without your, it's in the fo- foxhole? A lot of good it's going to do you there if someone starts shooting at us here. In the same way, every day we wake up, we equip ourselves for, for the battle. Now, the crazy thing is, this question, is life war or peace? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he comes to bring us peace. He said he came to give us life and life to the full. And yet Paul said, I'm fighting this good fight. I'm in the middle of a fight. So which is it? Are we at war or are we at peace? The answer is yes, both. In a crazy way, it's one of the paradoxes of the Christian life. Um, Yeah. In the midst of this battle of every day waking up, know that there's an enemy out against us, God is able to give us peace. And as we fight to abide in him, to stay close to him, he gives us a peace that we, we don't have to live every day full of anxiety. In fact, he commands us not to be anxious, but to pray and to give thanks instead. So here we are. We can be soldiers with that kind of a formidable enemy who's trying to wipe us and our kids out, and we can be content and happy and thankful. It's, it's a paradox that only can be explained by God putting his very spirit in our lives. doesn't make sense in terms of a battle. You don't see full soldiers throwing grenades with big smiles on their faces. But in the Christian life, we fight the battle with thanksgiving and with happiness and contentment. We can as we fight to abide in Christ. And that's what he wants us to do. The decisive day has been won, D-Day. The decisive battle, there's battles ahead, but the victory is ours. And lastly, I just wanted to touch on uh, this book, Wild at Heart, a really helpful book to me by John Eldridge. But it's calling men. It's, it's saying basically men want to be courageous. They want to take risks. That's part of the way God made men is to take risks, to not be passive but to fight against what is wrong. Uh, I think it's really hit on some important points. But then in their ministry, the, what they do is they take men on outdoor adventure camps. Um, and I, I don't mean to belittle it, but I, I feel like they're kind of missing the point. Yeah, men rappel down walls, and it takes courage, and it's an adventure. But God wants us to, use, to, to take risks and not be passive, to be active, to fight injustices in the, in the real world, in the world around us. He wants us loving people that are difficult to love, controlling our tongue when we're filled with rage and want to tell somebody off, but instead we return good for evil. That's fighting the spiritual battle. That's what he's calling men and women to, is using his Holy Spirit to return good for evil to love the unlovely, to see injustice and to see those that are poor and to know God's special heart for them and to make ourselves available by God to be used in that battle, to battle injustice, to make things right, to be God's representative. Let's just end with prayer. Lord, I just pray you would help us all to soberly take your word into our lives and change the way we see our lives, that we would be soldiers and athletes. Lord, we know we're also builders and we're your ambassadors. But Lord, some of us have not entered the battle. 
We've been just trying to find where there's the least conflict, the least difficulties. We just want life to go smoothly. We want to avoid any battle. But in fact, if we think like that, we've become a casualty of the war. We've been wounded already. So Lord, help us regain a right way of thinking about this life and to live it vigorously for you, Lord, while we live, and then to celebrate for eternity the victories that were won here and to celebrate you and to worship you, to begin that worship now through our lives and through our songs and to continue it on throughout eternity. Help us align our lives with your word, Lord God. We pray this for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.